Well, here we are just a few days before Christmas, and I wanted to tell you a story about something that happened to me on Christmas Eve several years ago. Uh, back then, I was a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. I was an atheist, a staunch atheist at the time. And I was working on Christmas Eve, and nothing is going on on Christmas Eve in terms of the news, a very dead news day. So all the reporters are kind of sitting around the newsroom. And, and, but I couldn't get my mind off of thinking about a Christian family that I had encountered about a month earlier. I'd been working on a, a series of articles for the Tribune on the poor of Chicago. And that's when I encountered 60-year-old Perfecta Delgado, uh, who was a grandmother raising two children, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny. And I remember walking into their apartment, a hovel, on the west side of Chicago. And I'd never seen anything like it. This, this little two-bedroom, or two-room uh, apartment was virtually devoid of any possessions. There were no rugs on the floor, there were no pictures on the wall, there was no furniture to sit on, there were no appliances in the kitchen, the kitchen cabinets were bare, there were no clothes in the closets. There was nothing in this little two-room apartment except a little card table in the kitchen and one cup of rice. In fact, uh, the uh, 11-year-old Lydia and 13-year-old Jenny uh, only owned one short sleeve dress each. And when they would walk a half a mile to school through the cold Chicago winter, they only had one thin gray sweater to share between them. And so Lydia would wear it halfway to school while her sister was shivering next to her, and then she'd take off the sweater and give it to her sister, and her sister would wear it the rest of the way. And I'd never seen a family so absolutely devoid of possessions. But what intrigued me was that in, in spite of their poverty and in spite of Perfecta's crippling arthritis, she still talked confidently about her faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, she was convinced that Jesus had not abandoned them. I mean, I never sensed despair in that home or self-pity in that home. Instead, there was a gentle feeling of hope and peace and love. So I wrote an article about this family, and I moved on to other assignments. But on Christmas Eve, I couldn't get my mind off them. So I decided to get in the car and drive over to the west side of Chicago and visit them and see how they were doing. And so I walked into their apartment, and I couldn't believe what I saw. The readers of the Tribune who'd read my earlier article absolutely showered them with stuff. I mean, I walked into that apartment, and there, were, there was furniture, there were pictures on the wall, there were rugs, there were, the closets were packed with clothing, warm coats and scarves and, and gloves. The, the kitchen cabins were bursting with food. They had appliances, beds. I mean, it was absolutely, and, and people sent them thousands of dollars in cash. But what really surprised me, even more than this outpouring of generosity, was what I interrupted on that Christmas Eve. They were getting ready to give away most of their newfound wealth. And when I asked Perfecto, what are you doing packing this stuff up to give it away? Perfecto said in her halting English, she said, well, our neighbors are still in need. She said, we cannot have plenty while they have nothing. 
She said, this is what Jesus would want us to do. And I said, well, you know, I mean, I was just blown away by this. If I'd been in their position at that time, I would have been hoarding this stuff. But here they are getting ready to give it away. And I said, well, what do you think of this generosity of the Tribune readers that gave you all this stuff? And she said, oh, this is wonderful. This is very good. We didn't deserve this. This is truly a gift from God. But that is not his greatest gift, she said. His greatest gift we celebrate tomorrow. His greatest gift is Jesus. To her, this child in a manger was the gift that meant everything. And at that moment, something inside of me desperately wanted to know this Jesus because I saw him reflected in Perfecta and her grandchildren. I mean, they had peace despite poverty, while I had anxiety despite my plenty. They knew the joy of generosity, but I only knew the loneliness of ambition. They looked heavenward for hope, but I only looked out for myself. They experienced the wonder of the supernatural, but I was shackled to the shallowness of the material. And something inside of me longed for what they had. Or to be more accurate, something inside of me longed for the one that they knew. And yet I was suspicious of feel-good emotions. As a journalist, I was trained to deal with facts and evidence and logic and, and, and things like that. And at that time, as an atheist, I believed that Christmas was a fairy tale, that, it, that Christianity was built on a flimsy foundation of wishful thinking. Until several years later, I took a clue from the most famous Christmas story of all time, the story where Luke's gospel described what happened to those shepherds in the field at that first Christmas. Here they are in this field, and these angels appear to them and tell them that a Savior has been born in Bethlehem. And then in Luke 2, verses 15 to 16, it talks about their reaction. It says, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So it says, they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. I mean, what intrigued me about that story is how the shepherds reacted to this news about the birth of the Messiah. They didn't dismiss it automatically as being a hallucination. They didn't just think it was a hoax or something like that. Instead, what did they do? They decided to investigate. They decided to get to the bottom of this. They decided to separate fact from fiction. They decided to go and find out what really had taken place. And it says they rushed off. This wasn't something they just kind of ambled off to do. They rushed off to investigate what was taking place. And that's what I did as a reporter. I investigated stuff. I, I checked out things to separate fact from fiction. And so prompted by my wife, who is an agnostic, by her conversion to Christianity, and still with the memory of the Delgados in my mind, I decided to kind of emulate those shepherds and get to the bottom of the most crucial question of history. Who was really in that manger on that first Christmas morning? Did he really grow up to prove that he's the son of God? So the first issue I investigated was, did he ever claim that he was God? Did Jesus grow up to claim that he was God? Now, 
being a skeptic, you know, I, I'm reading these four Gospels, and I look at the first Gospel that was ever written, the Gospel of Mark, and I notice, first thing I notice is that the way that Jesus referred to himself in this earliest Gospel is as the Son of Man, the Son of Man, not the Son of God. And I thought, well, there you go. He's just claiming to be a man like anybody else. But then I did further investigation. I found out that reference that he made when he called himself the Son of Man was a reference to the Old Testament, to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where the Son of Man is portrayed as a divine figure, as a God figure. This is what that passage said. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven. Coming in the clouds of heaven is imagery that the scripture uses to describe the coming judgment by God. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. Nobody came into the presence of God Almighty. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. Only God is legitimately worshiped. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus' claim of being the Son of Man was a claim of divinity. It was a claim to being the Son of God. And then you go to even the last gospel written, the Gospel of John. And in John 10, verse 30, Jesus comes right out and says, I and the Father are one. And the word in Greek there for one is not masculine, it's neuter which means Jesus was not saying I and the Father are the same person. He was saying I and the Father are the same thing. We're one in nature. We're one in essence. And how did the audience understand what he was saying? They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you, you're just a man, and you're claiming to be God. So Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. Well, great. That's a great first step. But there's really no question about that. You'll read this on the internet sometimes. Skeptics will say, oh, Jesus never made that claim. Baloney. He clearly made that claim. In fact, British theologian John Stott put it this way. He said, Jesus made it clear by word and deed that to know him was to know God. To see him was to see God. To believe in him was to believe in God. To receive him was to receive God. To reject him was to reject God. And to honor him was to honor God. So Jesus clearly made the claim that he was divine. But that leads to the second issue. Did Jesus show that he was God? Does he prove that he was God? What are his divine credentials to establish that he really is the unique son of God? Well, I looked at several things. First thing I looked at were his miracles. Jesus himself said in John 10, verse 37, Don't believe me unless I do miracles of God. Why? Because he knew that this would be strong confirmation of his claim to being the Messiah, the Son of God. In fact, hundreds of years before that first Christmas, the prophet Isaiah said that miracles would be one way that the Messiah would authenticate himself and his identity as being God. So Jesus, as we see, we have have sober records of him performing miraculous feats in broad daylight, often in front of skeptics. He demonstrated his power over nature by turning water into wine. He healed the blind. He healed those with leprosy. He even rose um, uh, Lazarus from the dead. And here's the thing. Jesus' opponents did not dispute the fact that he did miracles. 
They just complained that he did them on the Sabbath. So the first thing I looked at was miracles. Second thing I looked at, his second credential, was his character. His character. You know, so often, the closer we get to someone else, the more we get to know someone else, the more we see their flaws, the more we see their shortcomings, the more we see their sinful nature. I mean, when I was at Chicago Tribune and I'd get assigned to do an in-depth article about a celebrity or a sports figure or a politician or someone, and you spend a lot of time with them, you see their flaws. You see they're just as messed up as anybody else is. And yet, the opposite happened to those who were closest to Jesus. For instance, nobody was closer to Jesus during his three-year ministry than John and Peter. They saw him up close 24-7. So what was their assessment? Well, John wrote this in 1 John 3, verse 5. In him is no sin. And Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. So this incredible character of Jesus, his holiness, his perfection morally is another credential. The next credential especially blew me away. That was the fulfillment of ancient prophecy. I mean, I'd seen a lot of criminal trials. That was my job as legal editor. I'd travel the country and cover major criminal or civil cases. And um, um, often, the whole case hinged on a fingerprint or a thumbprint. I remember one murder trial I covered, the key piece of evidence that led to his conviction was a single thumbprint that was found on the cellophane wrapper of a pack of cigarettes. Why are fingerprints, why is fingerprint evidence so powerful? Because a fingerprint only fits one person on planet Earth. And if if something uh, has a fingerprint on it, it means that that person has come in contact with that item. And so it's a powerful bit of evidence. Well, in an analogous way, the Old Testament of Scripture contains dozens of ancient predictions and prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. And when you piece them together, they form, in a sense, a fingerprint, a thumbprint. In a sense, they're saying, whoever fulfills these prophecies, whoever matches this fingerprint, you can trust is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of Israel and the world. And of everybody who've ever lived on planet Earth, the billions of people who've ever lived on planet Earth, only one person has fit the fingerprint, and that's Jesus. For instance, Isaiah wrote a cluster of messianic prophecies hundreds of years before Jesus was born. He said the child would be born of a virgin. Who does that remind you of? Uh, That he would be called mighty God. What other individual who has walked on earth has been called God by billions of people? He would be called Emmanuel or God with us. Who else but Jesus is considered by billions of people to be God with them? The prophecies foretold the Messiah would come from a certain lineage, from the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Judah, the house of David, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be killed at a specific time in history, that he would be rejected by the Jews, that he would have, he would have his hands and feet pierced. That prophecy came before crucifixion was even invented. And we see it predicted that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Isaiah 53 written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, 
foretells 12 aspects of his suffering, death, and resurrection, all of which were fulfilled to the letter. And as I studied these prophecies, I had increasingly difficulty trying to explain them away. Maybe I thought, well, maybe these prophecies fit a lot of people. Maybe it's not just Jesus. Maybe this fingerprint actually fits a lot of folks. Now, that was kind of the way I tried to get around them. But then I read a book called Science Speaks by a college professor of mathematics out in California named Dr. Peter Stoner. He had an interesting thought. He said, wait a minute, many of these ancient prophecies can be quantified mathematically. In other words, one of the prophecies is that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, we know mathematically how many people through time have been born in Bethlehem. And so you can quantify many of these prophecies mathematically. So he got together 600 students, undergraduate and graduate students in mathematics, and they ran the numbers. What are the odds that any human being in history could fulfill just eight, just eight of the dozens of Old Testament prophecies? And they calculated that the chance of any human being through history fulfilling just eight of these prophecies would be one chance in a hundred million billion. Those are long odds, friends. <laughs> Those are long. You know, I'm trying to understand how big that number is, how long these odds are. And I calculated something. Um, this is a, a piece of tile that's one and a half inches square. What are the odds that any human being throughout history could fulfill just eight of these ancient prophecies? It would be like me taking tile this big and tiling this entire auditorium and then tiling the rest of the state of Texas and then the rest of the United States, and then Canada, and Mexico, and all of South America, and all of Europe, and all of Asia, all of Antarctica. Every piece of dry land on planet Earth would be tiled with tile this big. And underneath, on the bottom of one of them, just one tile would be a gold star. But that would be face down. You wouldn't know which tile had that. And then I chose someone here and said, you can walk anywhere on planet Earth. You can walk to Beijing, Rio de Janeiro, Rome, um, anywhere on the planet. But you can only bend down one time. And you can only pick up one tile at random. What are the chances it would be the tile with the gold star on the bottom? The same odds that any human being throughout history could fulfill just eight of these ancient prophecies. But Jesus did it. But then they went further, and they looked at what are the odds that any human being throughout history could fulfill 48 of these ancient prophecies, and they determined that the chance is one chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. This is a big number. This would be, this would be like um, taking one atom and spray painting it red. And then putting this atom somewhere in a space equal to a trillion, 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 billion universes, the size of our universe, just at random, somewhere in that space, and me giving you a spaceship. And you can travel anywhere you want in the trillion, 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 billion universes, but you can stop your spaceship one time. And you're blindfolded. You can... Take your little tweezers and open your porthole and put out your tweezers and pull in one atom. 
What are the odds it would be the Adam that had been spray painted red? The same odds that any human being throughout history could fulfill 48 of these prophecies. Can I tell you something? Jesus did it. Against every mathematical odd, Jesus did it. He said in Luke 24, verse 44, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, and they were fulfilled in him, and they are being fulfilled in him. In fact, listen to this. There were specific prophecies that had to be fulfilled before the second Jewish temple was destroyed in the year A.D. 70. For instance, Final atonement for sin had to be made, and there had to be a divine visit to that temple. And Jesus accomplished both of those things. But here's the deal. Either he's the Messiah, or there never will be a Messiah, because the temple has been destroyed. So it's either him, or it's nobody. And yet, the fulfillment of these prophecies says, it is Jesus, and it is only him. And then I looked at one more category. And that is Jesus' ultimate credential, which is his resurrection from the dead. You know, anybody can claim they're the son of God. But Jesus (laughs) was certifiably dead and three days later conquered death. That's pretty good evidence he's telling the truth. Now, I've written many books that that delve into the detail of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, the, 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 The historical evidence is absolutely overwhelming. For instance... We know that he was dead after being crucified. We have ancient sources, not just in the New Testament. We've got five ancient sources outside the Bible. Even the atheist historian, Gerd Ludemann, says it's historically indisputable that Jesus was dead after being crucified. We have an empty tomb. Even the opponents of Jesus admitted that his tomb was empty. We have accounts that he rose from the dead based on eyewitness reports with named eyewitnesses and groups of eyewitnesses that have been dated back by historians to within months of his death. Too quick to just write him off as merely being a legend. And then we have nine ancient sources, inside and outside the New Testament, confirming and corroborating the conviction of the disciples that they encountered the risen Christ. I mean, this is an avalanche of historical evidence. In fact, when I was a student at Yale University, at the, at the Yale Law School, one of my heroes was uh, the greatest defense attorney who ever lived. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records as winning more murder trials in a row than any attorney in history. Um, he knew what constituted reliable evidence. He wasn't easily a guy to have a wool pulled down over his eyes. He knew how to take what looked like an airtight case against his client and find all the loopholes, all the problems with it. And all that was true of him. His name was Sir Lionel Lucku. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth and became a member of the Supreme Court of his land. But he was a skeptic about the resurrection until he took his monumental legal skill and applied it to the historical evidence. And I'll recite to you one sentence he wrote that summarized his conclusion. He said, quote, I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. This from the greatest defense attorney who ever lived. So did the baby in the manger grow up to claim that he was the son of God? 
Clearly, clearly he did. And did he go on to back up that claim to prove that he is indeed the unique son of God? He surely did. He backed it up in compelling ways by performing supernatural miracles even in front of skeptics who didn't deny it that he lived a morally perfect life, that he fit this prophetic fingerprint like nobody else in history, and that he conquered death itself. So my verdict in the case for Christmas was that the baby in the manger was the divine, miracle-working, grace-offering, resurrected, one and only Son of God. And so why did he do it? Why, why Christmas? Why did he give up the perks of heaven and come into this world as a baby and live among us, suffer as he did? Why, why did he do that? Well, of course, the ultimate purpose of Christmas is Easter, that Jesus came into our world with a mission to seek and save the lost, to die as our substitute, to pay for all of the sins that we've committed so he can offer forgiveness as a free gift of his grace. That was his ultimate mission. But I think there's more to it than that. I think there's more to it than that. And to explain that, I'm just going to use an analogy. Um, I have a son by the name of Kyle. And when he was a kid, he was allergic to cats and dogs. And he wanted a pet. He wanted a cat. He wanted a dog. He couldn't have one. He was way too allergic. Um, I remember one day we were walking, uh, taking a hike through a forest, and we found a big turtle, big box turtle. He said, Dad, can I have the turtle for a pet? At least can I have the turtle? Okay, so we took the turtle home. The turtle became his pet, but he wanted a dog or cat so much. You know what he named the turtle? Fluffy. <laughs> I said, you ought to name him Shelly. I mean, that makes more sense. But anyway, um, the, the turtle didn't last that long. But um, ultimately, we found a non-allergic pet who was fluffy, and who was cuddly, and who was loving. It was a chinchilla. You know, I don't know if you know what a chinchilla is. It kind of looks like a cross between a squirrel and a rabbit. I think we have a picture of it. There, there's a chinchilla. They're very sweet. It's a wonderful pet, and they're non-allergic, and I uh, highly recommend it for children. I mean, it's very friendly. I used to sit on my son's shoulder, and great pet. But anyway, we love this chinchilla. We came as a family to love him, and we named him Dusty. And the reason we named it Dusty is chinchillas, to clean their fur, um, they roll around in a special dust, and it's really entertaining to watch them. So we named them Dusty, which we thought was very clever until we found out that 80% of all chinchillas are named Dusty <laughs> for the same reason. But anyway, Christmas was approaching, and we decided to give Dusty a special gift. Dusty had been living in kind of a small primitive cage, and there wasn't much to it. There wasn't any room really to run around. It wasn't that comfortable. And so we thought as a gift on Christmas, let's get him the ultimate cage. And we went out and we got him the Disneyland of chinchilla cages. I mean, this thing was awesome. It was three stories tall, so it had three levels that he could run around. It had built-in toys that he could play with, places he could run and, and, and enjoy himself and everything. It was unbelievable. It was a true Disneyland of cages. And so on Christmas Eve, we took Dusty in his old cage, his primitive cage, and we put it down, and we got this fabulous Disneyland of cages. We put it right next to him, right next to his other cage, and we opened the doors of both, figuring like he'd see this thing and he would rush into it, but he didn't. He stayed in his old cage. He refused to budge from his old cage. 
For some reason, he was scared to death of going into this new home. He was scared to death of just walking through the door into this fabulous new house. We tried to coax him with some raisins. They love raisins. That didn't work. We tried to give him a little push, a little shove. That just, that didn't work. Kind of got upset with that. And I said, Dusty, this is ridiculous. You're living in a hovel, and I'm offering you a mansion, and you're balking. I said, trust me, Dusty. There's nothing to be afraid of. Come on, just walk through the door. But of course, he didn't understand me. He didn't get what I was saying. Couldn't communicate with him. But then I started to think, what if, I know this sounds weird, but what if I could become a chinchilla, just like him? What if I could become a chinchilla? What if, what if I could live alongside of Dusty and hang out with Dusty and become best friends with Dusty and experience what Dusty experienced and hang out with him? Then I'd better understand his fear and I'd be better able to communicate just one chinchilla to the other. I could communicate effectively and sensitively and say to him, hey, friend, you don't know what you're missing. I mean, this new home is far, far better than anything you've ever experienced. It's a tremendous gift for you. For goodness sake, just walk through the door. And then maybe he'd understand, since it's coming with another chinchilla. Well, in a way, that's what Christmas is about. Jesus, of course, didn't become a chinchilla. He became a man, fully God and fully man. And because he lived among us, because he experienced what we experienced, because he suffered as many of us suffer, we have a commonality that we otherwise would not have. And we can relate to each other. And he can empathize with us. And he can communicate with us in a way that we could understand. And what was he saying to us? What was he saying to you? He was saying, hey, friend, you don't know what you're missing. I'm opening the door to my kingdom, and you can walk through it right now and spend the rest of your life in this mansion and then eternity with me forever. Admittance is totally free. So you'll find it's far, far better than anything you've ever experienced. It is my gift to you. Just walk through the door. That's Christmas. Jesus said in John 10, verse 10, I came that you might have life and have it to the full. I know we're living in tough economic times. I know that. We've all experienced that. But I doubt if any of us is living a life as deprived as possessions as Perfecta Delgado and her granddaughters when I first met them many years ago in their little two-room apartment in the west side of Chicago. And yet when Perfecta and her grandchildren became followers of Jesus Christ, when they walked through that door into his kingdom, they found hope and they found peace and they found courage and they found forgiveness and love and they found generosity of heart and they found a future with a promise of a home forever with God in heaven. So this Christmas season, Jesus is standing at your door. And he says, I'm knocking at your door. In fact, Revelation 3, verse 20, Jesus said, here I am. Here I'm standing at your door, and I'm knocking at your door. 
He said, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Friends, don't be like Dusty. (laughs) Don't be like Dusty. Walk through the door into the kingdom of God. Do it today. Do it right now. And you can dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Are you ready to take that step? Are you ready to walk into God's kingdom? To live how he wants you to live for the rest of your life in this world and then in eternity in a mansion in heaven with him forever. If you want to take that step, I'm just going to offer a prayer. Just, you can just repeat these words in your heart. God will hear you. And he will fling open the doors to his kingdom for you forever. So let's close our eyes and bow our heads. And if you want to take that step, just in your heart, say, Lord Jesus, as best I can, I do believe that you are the unique son of God and that you came into this world on a rescue mission for me. Please forgive me of all of the wrongdoing that I've done that separates me from you in repentance and faith right now, I walk through the door into your kingdom forever. Thank you for the greatest gift I will ever receive. New life, new hope, new purpose, new eternity through your atoning work for me on the cross. Change my life. Help me to live the kind of life that you want me to live. Because from this moment on, I am yours. And now, Father, for those that have taken that step just now, entered into your kingdom to live in it the rest of their lives and for eternity in heaven, we thank you for this greatest gift of Christmas. Thank you for sending your son on this rescue mission for the likes of us. Thank you for giving us hope in the midst of a difficult, troubling year. And we pray. We pray that this Christmas would be a special time, a special time of knowing that we are safely in your kingdom forever. For those that are still on the journey, we pray they would come back on Christmas Eve, learn more next week and so, that you would help them, help open their eyes to the truth of this greatest gift of all. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Hey church, thanks for listening to the Woodlands Church with Carrie Shook podcast. By listening, we hope that you're encouraged wherever you are. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast so that you can get the latest messages each week. For more information on Woodlands Church, check out the description for a link to our website and how to connect with us. We hope you have a great week.